Welcome, awesome admission professionals. This podcast is the Admissions Entrepreneur, a day in the life. I'm your host, Tom Skank, and I'm the founder of Dartmouth Associates. We are the creators of the results-oriented recruiting solution known as ROAR. ROAR is an enrollment intervention strategy that integrates entrepreneurial thinking and sales fundamentals to immediately help schools in crisis. We offer personal 360 consulting as well as affordable training products on the website. If you need help, please go to our website at dartmouthassociates.com. That's dartmouthassociates.com or email us at dartmouthassociates at gmail.com. That is dartmouthassociates at gmail.com. Today, we are bringing fun and insights to your profession. We have exciting people who share their unique life stories with you. We've got a lineup of fabulous guests, so please make sure to catch each episode. Now, let's get started. Our guest today is Patrick Finn. He's a dear friend of mine, and I am delighted that he is here. Patrick founded School Connections in 2007. He created a format that would make it easier and more cost-effective for admissions representatives and educational consultants to meet. By the way, Pat, I love your company. My school clients use your method and have been thrilled with the results. Patrick also brings a wealth of experience in independent school admission, financial aid, and enrollment management as well as a deep understanding and appreciation of school communities. Patrick holds a BA in history from the University of Virginia and an MS in education from Pennsylvania State University. From 1987 to 2002, he was director of admission at Canterbury School in New Milford, Connecticut. He has also been assistant head of school and director of admission at St. Timothy's from 2002 to 2009. From 2011 to 2017, he was director of enrollment at Foxcroft School. Most recently, Patrick served as interim head of school at Wakefield Country Day School in Huntley, Virginia. He has coached lacrosse, basketball, and has also taught ethics. Currently, Pat is the offensive coordinator for the men's lacrosse team for the University of Mary Washington. Pat, welcome. Hi, Tom. Good to talk with you. Well, it's nice to talk with you. Well, you, like all kinds of other admissions folks, uh, are really Renaissance people. And I wanted to find out what it was you felt about being in the admissions world that prepared you to start your company, School Connections. Sure. That, that's a good first question because it, it basically ties right into the admissions world because uh, my my company basically grew out of, uh, of admissions and consultants working together. Um, and I will say my company is like most things these days are, are borrowed ideas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was doing, uh, I was introduced to the international agent network, uh-huh. uh, somewhere around 
2004 or five um, and started doing these big, huge fairs in, uh, in London and Berlin and around the, the, the globe, um, which were basically the format we, we borrowed. Um, and I found them extremely effective. Um, it was a great introduction to obviously the agent world, um, which is pretty big these days with, with all schools. And, um, and I kept coming back to friends back in the U S saying, doesn't this model sound good? Doesn't it seem like we should have one of these and wouldn't this be more cost effective? Uh, and would you do it if I, if, if, sure. if somebody sure. started it and I did not want to start it myself, uh, as you know, admissions is pretty full time. Yes. <laughs> so, um, eventually, um, I just could not get anybody to do it. And, uh, got a good friend of mine uh, who was in admissions in a day school in Baltimore and my sister uh, <laughs> and both had just had young children. And I, and I present them with this idea and said, look, if you can do the groundwork um, and organize the event, I think this, this I'll guide you along and we'll see what happens. And so, you know, that's how it started. So. How long did it take before you said, wow, this thing is really taken off this is this is going to work because i know every well, business doesn't get out of the gate successfully right away no and and you know admissions is a small world and and yeah. which in, at that time included the consultants because if you remember ieca um was a very fairly small affair for us as admissions people to attend and there weren't right. thousands and thousands of consultants there were a couple hundred and you know, you had dinner with, with people, you hung out at the pool, uh, working of course, <laughs> of uh, course at the pool. Uh, and so, so <clears throat> I think that, um, you know, it really was, it grew right out of that concept. So right out of that model. So people naturally, uh, the first one we ran, I, I thought it, it was, wow, this is amazing. It really worked. Uh, I knew it worked because I watched the model overseas. Work, so sure. Right. So um, did I think it would last for 12 years? I didn't even think that back then. I just thought this would be really my thought originally was this is going to be great for admissions people to save money, save time, get right. together, have a little fun and, and work hard for a couple of days. So that's still, that's still the, the concept today. And, you know, I think we try to create more um, for people than we take in. So I think that's a good, uh, a good, a good ethos to have is to give people um, more than what they want in a way. Well, the exciting thing is that uh, now finally we're going to be able to take our masks off a little bit and you're going to actually have a, have a live event coming up here in the fall. Talk about that a little bit. Well, we, we, um, you know, like most, I mean, in, in essence, we are an event company. Yes. <laughs> we do run events. So uh, obviously last year was not a great one for event companies. Uh, we, we ended up doing a lot of virtual things that, that, that worked out really well. And we'll probably continue the virtual events because people really felt they were a good effective use of their time without leaving the office. We do a five consultant, five school kind of, of, of workshop virtually, and it's been successful. So 
but I think people, especially admissions people, miss the face-to-face. And Absolutely. I think as we've learned in education, yes, you can Zoom teach, uh, and it might be more effective for some people, but I think the live teaching is, is obviously has greater benefit. So um, we, we um, you know, we're waiting for things to come back to life, and we're going to have our first workshop in uh, August in uh, Philadelphia. And, and that's live? Newport. Mm-hmm, that's live, and then yep. Newport in uh, September, which is live, and then a yep. San Diego workshop in, in October. And I will definitely see you in San Diego, if not, uh, if not before, because that's... I hope know, so, because the weather is so bad there in the fall, you'll want something to do inside, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> that's right. This episode is sponsored by School Connections. The idea is simple, affordable and meaningful venues for traditional boarding schools, therapeutic schools, and domestic and international educational consultants to come together for informational and networking purposes. This process ultimately leads to the successful placing of students into the most compatible environments. School Connections workshops involve multiple individual meetings between educational consultants and admissions representatives from schools and programs. Their workshops range from two to three days and allow attendees to maximize their time with individual appointments in one workshop in one location. I know from experience, School Connections is a fantastic program. And if you are looking for students, please reach out to them at schoolconnections.org. That's schoolconnections.org. The nice thing out of COVID for School Connections is now you've really got uh, two ways to connect people, virtually and, of course, the, the real important face-to-face stuff. Absolutely. Let me go back a little bit. Um, we were talking earlier about your start uh, at Canterbury when you got into admissions. Tell us a little bit of that, uh, that conversation you had with the outgoing director of admission. I think that that tells the, tells the story a little bit of how we really don't have any formal training, but it's really pretty much on the job. Right. Well, if you think about it, I started in 89 in admissions. And um, up until the late 60s, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, because you are a little older. Um, <laughs> yeah, my cane's right late, here. <laughs> up until the late 60s, I mean, most boarding schools in New England, where I started, had heads that had been there for 30 or 40 years, did the admissions themselves pretty much, maybe had an assistant helping them. Uh, and then as the, the 70s, 80s, I think probably is, I don't even know when the first director of admissions was, and maybe you do know that, but I bet, <laughs> it, I bet it was somewhere in the 60s and 70s, especially not in the bigger schools, but in the, in the you know, the 200 to 300 range types sure. of, of boarding schools. Um, and then I, and I, again, I think it originally probably the admissions director was just there to take the place of the head or to, or for the head to pass names on or to, I don't think there was a lot of outreach other than among alumni and receptions and things like that. Um, and then I think um, as always, the larger boarding schools probably set the tone yep. um, and, and, started hiring admissions people, uh, you know, as many as they probably felt were necessary. Uh, and then it kind of got passed along. So when, when I started in 89, um, the person I 
took over for it was to me the quintessential admissions director he was <laughs> silver-haired garrulous you know life of every room and uh, uh honestly when i when i thought about replacing him i was like i don't even know if i can do what he does um, right so but it, at that time you know they really weren't really doing a lot of outreach we had not had an open house at canterbury at, at wow. that time which was not to to say anything wrong about what we were doing it's just that was where we were at the time and most schools were uh but i remember thinking uh in june when i took over for him and he was happy to get out of that and go back to teaching <laughs> and, <laughs> um and i said you know this was fran foley um and i said fran i I don't even know what I'm really doing. He said, ah, oh, you'll figure it out. And that was your <laughs> so, training right there. That was my training right there. So <laughs> I, I do remember my first uh, interviews very well, really kind of having been at the school a year. Um, you know, I realized pretty quickly it was, it was what Fran was just about people a, sure. a, and a lar- to a large extent. Uh, but uh, the formal training really became, you know, back then SSAT every right. year was That's the right. only formal training we really had. Yeah. So, that was the big convention. We all look forward to you know, catching up with everybody and learning about what was going on in the industry. Right. And at the same time, it was also, you know, most of us who'd worked to fill our schools over the summers, right. uh, hopefully we were at an ending at some point. Um, and there was kind of a clear ending back then. I think you yes. you did end when school started, and it took a while for the fall to get going. Maybe a three or four week period, and it, and and SSAT was during that time. And it was also a big relief to get there and go, wow, that we made it another year. Um, yeah. So, so I remember those sighs of relief. You know. Yes. When, uh, so you're able to report to the board, we did it. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and then it's like, what have you done for us? You know now, and so, so exactly. we're off. We're off and running. Pat, what do you th- what do you think are the are the the skills, whether it was back then or now, that every admissions officer has to have to be successful? I don't think the core skills have changed. I think um, you have to love working with people. You have to love working with kids. Number one. Um, <laughs> you want to see kids be. So I think that's the core value right there. Um, and then beyond that, um, you know, the people skills and uh, extroversion of the, of the field. Although I, I find most admissions directors are probably introverts more than they are extroverts because really? they can turn it on and off. Yeah. I think you turn it on and off. And uh-huh. when you're on your downtime, most people I know are very happy to, read a book, watch a show, <laughs> garden, you know, sure. we can turn it on anytime. How many times yeah. in our lives were we, you know, a Friday night driving two and a half hours to some school fair and <laughs> thinking I'll never be able to smile. And then you get there and all of a sudden the room lights up and you're back to your admission self. So, you know, it, the light bulb kind of goes off when you need it to. But, um, you know, of course, those are the, those are the core skills. And, and I think the advantage to people today like like any job in this 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 era we live in, there's such a wealth of information out there. This podcast will certainly be another, um, hopefully, bit of information for people to to use and and a resource for them uh, going forward. So there there's a lot of um, 
just just good hardcore information out there in helping admissions people become admissions people. Yeah. You know, there aren't really uh, any specific degree programs. I think UCLA has got a certificate program. Uh, right. And then of course, uh, ASAP does an incredible job with all of their training. What do you think the new skills are that are needed for people coming into the admissions professional? You talked about the foundational skills. What are the new skills that they, that they really have to have to, to thrive moving forward? I think you have to be constantly um, aware of and searching for and cognizant of new approaches to marketing. Um, and that is, of course, has grown a thousandfold since, since I started. So, yes. um, and then I, th I think the ciphering of those things to fit your school is really vastly important. Really you can't do everything. Yeah, you can't do everything that you read about. And the great thing is you can <laughs> read about a lot of different approaches. I, I am on this um, higher ed, um, uh, I guess it's a marketing thing every, I get every day. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a piece put out by higher ed and it talks about all kinds of things in higher ed. I find that incredibly fascinating because of course, the higher ed get trickles trickles down to boarding schools, right. and so right. you find pieces of things in there that you say, "Wow, that could really work for for a school." And I and I think that that kind of searching for different avenues of of marketing and then adapting it is really important. Now, having said that, how much of your day can you really devote to, you know, search and discovery? Probably right. not, not a lot. Um, and I think that is something that in, in the, in the average size boarding school office, you're still doing so many different things that it's hard to be exploratory. The summer was always a great time to actually, you know, while you get to breathe a little bit, uh -huh. you're still trying to fill your school, but it allows you to kind of plan and, and, and look ahead to the school year. And so, I think the summer probably is still a good time to do that. But I think on a daily basis, most admissions people don't have the ability to see above the, the, you know, the area, the, the small area that they're dealing with every day. That's right. That's right. There, there are a lot of things that are right in your face all the time. This episode is sponsored by the Independent Educational Consultants Association. It is the largest and most respected organization representing independent educational consultants. An IECA member educational consultant is a skilled professional who provides counseling to help students and families choose a school that is a good personal match, one that will foster the student's academic and social growth. IECA members adhere to the strictest ethical standards in the profession, visit hundreds of campuses each year, and are among the most experienced educational consultants in the profession. They focus on finding the best match between student and school. Many schools have gained students from new communities because of their outreach to IECA members. Personally, I was a director of admissions for 20 years, and the IECA consultants were crucial in helping me find the best mission-appropriate students. They are fantastic people to work with. In fact, national and regional media, as well as government agencies, rely on IECA as the authority 
of the profession. IECA is consistently cited by the media as the association with ethical, student-centered advising. For more information on how to connect with IECA members, go to IECAonline.com. That's IECAonline.com. So let me let me ask you. I you know you're you're a successful CEO of a company. Um, how do you organize your day? What you know? How do you keep your personal life and your professional life moving successfully? What do you do? What's a day like well, for Pat? <laughs> well, I stuck to the boarding school model in that everything is intertwined. <laughs> the, <laughs> I uh, when I got married when I was at Canterbury uh, to my lovely wife Gina. Uh, she was an accountant by nature or by training. Um, <laughs> couldn't couldn't find maybe by nature too, but couldn't <laughs> couldn't find a job in the small town in Connecticut. And sure. about two years into our marriage, our financial aid person left, an interviewer left, and it was a part time job. Um, and Gina took that job, and I had an office of seven of us at Canterbury, so we weren't interacting daily. Well, we were interacting daily, but of course, so, you know, I'm working with my wife, uh, which was great. You know, and when we were at St. Timothy school, our kids, our two of our daughters went there. That's awesome. I mean, yes, boarding schools are a great family place, a uh, great place to raise kids. Um, as you know, I mean, the, the, the access to facilities and other faculty children and everything is just, you know, just, uh, I, I would think as a child, as a, as a child growing up on a boarding school campus, like how could it be better? Right. That's right. It's, it's That's all right. there at your fingertips. So, so back to your question. I mean, I think I've always intertwined my personal life with my professional life and that's boarding school in, in, in a way, it's not just me. That's, that's everybody. I think. Um, that's right. That's right. My, so, I was going to say, yeah. I loved working with, with my wife, Nancy as well. Right. Uh, and, and the facilities, there was always something to do. Uh, I know my wife, uh, she was an academic tutor. Um, she helped in the admission office. And then in the afternoon, she'd, she'd uh, have a van full of kids and take them horseback riding. Yeah. <laughs> and, our, and our kids went to Rumsey. So I, I know exactly what you're right. talking about. So Absolutely. how did you, in, so tell me, how did you and Gina meet um, initially? Uh, I was uh, at UVA, although my master's is from Penn State, I was in state at that time, tuition wise at UVA. So I, I did my year, uh, full year at Penn State and then had a, a couple of courses I could transfer back uh, and an internship. So I was back in Charlottesville, one of my favorite places in the world. <laughs> Most people that go to UVA don't like to leave Charlottesville. I was one of them. Um, and uh, at that point, I was finishing up coursework, coaching lacrosse at University of Virginia as an assistant. Um, and we met at a friend of mine's restaurant um, and, uh, you know, began dating. And uh, it was a big question mark when I took the job at Canterbury, whether we would continue, like, you know, long distance relationship sure. kind of thing. And, and we did and ended up getting married uh, two years later. So... Tell me a little bit about when you actually proposed. Did you, where was it? Uh, how did it go? Uh, you don't want to hear the story. <laughs> uh, let's just say I was expected to propose at a time where I didn't know I was supposed to. <laughs> Realize that 
pretty soon thereafter and then proposed. <laughs> so I think I'd given. I think I'd said at some point. I'm. I'm. We went to the beach one one week in the spring uh, during spring break, uh, and uh, and I think she expected a proposal. Then I might have said something about that earlier, but forgotten. And uh, so <laughs> at the end of the spring break, when I had uh, had a little discussion, and I ended up proposing. Wow! So, how did you do it? Well, I, I'll uh, quick story. I was my wife's waiter in New York City, mm-hmm. and you know everybody's got a different uh, time frame from when they meet someone to when they get married. She and I actually got married three months later, and we were uh, we were in a little uh, studio apartment up on the ninety uh, six in Lexington. And I remember I got down on one knee and, uh, you know, had the ring out. So it, it all worked well. And uh, that was 41 years later. Well, That's let me great. ask you, and I, you know, again, I think uh, you and I probably both married up. Um, of course. What do you think it takes to, to, uh, to have a successful marriage, Pat, as you, as you look back? Uh, I, you know, honestly, if I were to do it over again, I'd do it a lot differently. Um, in, in many ways, I think, um, and, and I say that only because I think being at a boarding school in particular, where your job and your personal life are so wrapped up together. Um, I'm not always sure that's the smartest way to go about a marriage. I think it's healthy to have some separate, um, things. And I think in, in a, in a boarding school, it's, that's almost impossible. I mean, we're, (laughs) <laughs> we were both coaching. We were both teaching. We were both doing admissions. Um, and, and so, but what would I do differently? I'd probably be a much better listener. And I think that's one of those skills that if you're, you know, if you're in admissions for a long time, you learn that listening is probably, and let's face it, listening is probably the one key skill, uh, especially in these days that we, we all need to have. So um, I'd be a better listener. Definitely. I, uh, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I think that, uh, you know, you read things that say you want to talk 30% of the time and listen the rest of the time, particularly when you're meeting somebody, somebody new for the, for the first time. So right now you're coaching right. and you've got school connections that keeps you very busy, I'm sure. What else does Pat Finn like to do for fun? Uh, do you have a favorite food? Uh, you know, what, uh, what are your guilty pleasures to get you through the day? I do really enjoy cooking. Um, I'm going to sound very banal and all this stuff, but (laughs) you know, I enjoy cooking. We have a a couple acres at the house and I, I will say one of the nice things about moving off the boarding school world after 32 years was to actually have your own house um, and your own yard. Um, (laughs) And, uh, you know, that's, that's been great. And so two acres takes a lot of work, uh, in the just yard work. So, you know, that's six, seven months a year, at least in Virginia. Um, so I have gardens, I have vegetables, I have flowers, things like that. Pets, animals we love. Um, you know, we, we do like to, we do enjoy food who doesn't. Uh, so in non COVID times, you know, we like to eat out once a week and, um, pretty, uh, you know, I think, as you, and this may have been a boarding school thing too. I think you really, because of the travel and the time away, 
um, that admissions people have, I think you really learn to appreciate being home. Um, so I, I love being home. Um, it's great to work from home. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think it's for everybody. I mean, it is for everybody right now for the most right, part, but, right. uh, but I think if people had adjusted to it, they would, they probably are going to have a hard time going back to an office. Um, so, uh, I agree. I agree. Yeah. I, I think there are a lot of wonderful advantages, uh, to be able to work from home. It gives you a lot more freedom. Uh, and then if you do want to travel, it's not something that you have to do all the time. You do it Absolutely. when you need to. And that's, and that's about it. So just and, go ahead. And I'm sorry, let me interrupt. I tell kids that I coach and work with today all the time, you know, most of them don't really have a career yet. Yep. A lucky few seem, you know, headed to be doctors and lawyers. They know what they want. Right. Those are always the lucky ones. But I always tell people, you know, have your own business on the side of what you do if you can, because uh, as you just said, having your own time, having your own freedom, chance to make decisions about what you want to do every day, as opposed to those decisions being forced upon you is, is really awesome to have. And I want to go back to the, the fact that you were a waiter because one of the skills I think prepares everyone for admissions is waiting tables, bartending, working in the restaurant business because you are, you know, in, in essence, as an admissions person, you are the waiter or waitress. And uh, no matter what happens at that table, you've got to have a smile on your face and act like it all was supposed to happen that way. And <laughs> Yes, we burned your your lobster, your steak, whatever, but that's okay. We'll have one right out for you. And, you know, I think that kind of mindset of always helping the customer feel wanted and important and listened to is very much the admissions world. And and, and as, as a skill, that never goes away. Everybody uh, wants to be wanted. I've, I've seen people um, choose a school for their child because that school made them feel wanted. They, mm -hmm. I, I've had them actually say, I felt they wanted us more than the other school. Both of them mm -hmm. find schools. So what you're saying is absolutely true. Let me get yeah. back to you know, the young people that you were talking about uh, that you coach. What do you think today are some of the greatest challenges for young people that perhaps you and I didn't have? What, what are kind of the extra challenges that you see, Pat? Gosh, it, it seems, and I have three children, so um, in their twenties, so um, I've watched them go into this digital age um, from a non-digital digital age. Uh, <laughs> I've seen that transformation. I think that is the toughest challenge they face: is how to live in a world where, um, you know, you've got this great source of communication um, resource in the palm of your hand all the time, how do you use that uh, for good <laughs> rather than evil <laughs> and, and take advantage of it and not let it consume you? And um, I mean, look, our generation has adopted that phone every bit as much as the younger generation Absolutely. has. Absolutely. Uh, if maybe not more so, but I think for uh, not to mention COVID, not to mention the um, divisive state of the country right now, um, just, you know, 
it probably hasn't changed much in the fact that they have to deal with relationships amongst their peers, uh, employers, the whole thing, family. It's, it's, it's always the, the hardest thing for them to do while they're growing up. And, and right now I'm working more with college kids, but uh-huh. um, if we look back to those college days, as we do, it was scary times coming out of college, not knowing other than a lucky few who had, who had a job and who came out sure. knowing they were going to be doing something. Most of us were kind of, you know, that was a tough time for us. So I think um, helping them, helping guide them if I can to um, figure out what they want to do um, and what they, what they, what they should do in a way. And, and I always look back to, um, you know, when I was out of college and thinking, okay, what do I like to do? Um, right. right. And that's centered on kids and, and classrooms and coaching and that kind of formed my, my path. So those kids today are in the same, same boat. Um, and yet with, with many, many more pressures on them, I think. What do you think those pressures are? Just anything come to mind that uh, perhaps are the new pressures? I, I think they're the same pressures. They're just at such a heightened degree in their, in their face all the time that it yeah. makes it a lot tougher. I mean, we, t- we talk about, um, you know, just, just anxiety amongst sure you know, yeah. teens. And, and, and you've got social media. Yeah. Always, right. always in everybody's face. Right. Obviously part of being successful is overcoming challenges. Um, we've all had them. Are there any challenges that you can think of that really brought you to your knees, uh, but you were able to come through the other side? Um, anything come to mind, just whether it's personal or professional? That was probably a, a dark, challenging time in your life. Um, you know, I, I think there's been a series of them. Um, uh-huh. How dark? I, I wouldn't say dark, but certainly learning, <laughs> learning experiences. <laughs> um, and, and, I, and as and anyone would tell you and, and profess that these things do make you stronger yes. um, when you go through them. But, you know, life is challenges. Work is challenges family's challenges. I mean, you wouldn't want to take a look at it from a very objective viewpoint and go into it because you wouldn't probably um, into into a lot of these things, but you know, life is about challenges. And I, you know, I've been very fortunate to always have um, older people as mentors and guides really uh, and it, it's something at my age right now in my late thirties that um, I really feel like uh, that's not true. That's, that's, a joke. Um, you know, I, I really miss having um, the people that, that I had all my life, those older people to, to help me through times. And I don't really have that right now. And I suppose um, that's what you become eventually. Uh, sure. But uh, but I really think it's really important to have people helping you along the way. And certainly uh, people have been through these things are, are perfect to, to help you. So I hope everybody in their lives, um, you know, search for if they don't have that, that older um, person who they can trust and rely on and confide in and help guide them. And, you know, maybe our parents' generation didn't necessarily do all that, but they certainly told us what was right and wrong. (laughs) And, 
you know, that was a pretty good way of going about things. Yeah. What you say makes so much sense because there's no, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine and we were saying that there is no self-made anybody. Uh, we've all gotten to where we are because there were people that cared about us uh, and were there to support us when we needed it. So you're right. It is crucial to have somebody to reach out to or a number of people to reach out to, uh, whether it's professionally or personally. Uh, that's Absolutely. A- and I look back to my first, you know, I don't like to overuse the word mentor, but friend really uh, uh-huh. was the head at Canterbury when I started. And this was a person who was the head of school, had gone to Canterbury, um, gone to Amherst, come back to Canterbury, taught like many people did for years and became head in the, in the seventies or late seventies. And uh, I mean, to me, he taught me everything about what it was like to work at a boarding school. Um, And this was a person who had had polio as a child. He was on crutches. Uh, He had the, he was the best man at my wedding after my two years being there because I figured he could talk he could talk about a new faculty member who le- who's who left after a year, like they put in 40 years of, of work at the school. He could make that person look and feel so great about themselves after just one year. And I was like, he's going to be good for toasts and for, <laughs> for <laughs> everything associated with the wedding. But, but he was a real, you know, he showed me how things work at boarding school and taught me so much. And, um, you know, relied on him for a lot. This episode is brought to you by ISCA. Does your board chair know about ISCA, the Independent School Chairpersons Association? The mission of ISCA is to support independent school board chairs in becoming effective governance leaders for their boards. ISCA accomplishes this by offering peer support and networking resources and educational opportunities. Get your board chair connected to ISCA today by visiting visiting iscachairs.org. That's I-S-C-A-C-H-A-I-R-S.org. I-S-C-A-C-H-A-I-R-S.org. One of the things that, uh, that comes to mind a lot is sometimes I think about uh, who was the Tom Skank uh, in high school or grade school and how has that guy changed? How would you describe yourself, say, maybe as a little kid, uh, as a sixth grader on the playground to the high school kid, to who you are now? Has there been much of a change? What, what was it about your person? What kind of personality would you, do, would you describe yourself as having, say, when you were in grade school or high school? That's a really interesting question. Uh, very deep, Tom. Very deep. <laughs> Once you know, in a while, I get them. <laughs> I, I look back to my early childhood and I had, uh, we lived on my grandfather's farm for six or seven years. And my grandfather was the very person I'm talking about who took me under his wing. There were six in my family, but for some reason we bonded. I was four, five, six, seven, eight years old during that Uh time. And he was my best friend. And, you know, I hadn't really thought about that until you threw that out there, but you know, that's the precursor to the people in my life that I think have meant the most to me are those older people who, who have helped guide me. So was I different? Yeah. Who the heck knows? Um, (laughs) I I think my core values, I mean, I I teach ethics, so 
You know, right. I know that your core values are formed at a very young age. So I, I don't think as much as we all profess, you know, in this world to change and be, be ready to change and accept change. I don't know if we really change our core values that much. I know how hard it is in, in high school to teach ethics to, to kids and get them to see something differently than they've, they've, they've seen all their lives there in their short lives, but they've already formed such deep opinions about um, it's hard to get people to open up to different ideas. And, and, you know, we, we, I think that's the advantage in today's world. We are at a time where, you know, the great um, so, so much uh, diversity around us and different ways of life and different ways of thinking that we're, we're now being able to, to have in our own lives that, that makes it, you know, that much better. No, it's, uh, you're absolutely right. It's, uh, it's crucial, hopefully, as, as parents uh, looking to uh, be the best parents they can be, is to give those values. And somebody once said, uh, it's not so much about teaching your kids, but rather it's about living a life that they will see as one of integrity. Mm -hmm. Because they, as, as I've told my kids, I said, you've been watching us since the day you were born. <laughs> you know, there's not much we can put past them. Absolutely. They know us. You probably didn't have to even tell them that, I'm sure. No. They, they no. probably were like, yeah, dad, we know that. Yeah. yeah, we get it. We get it. <laughs> but, you know, this is, these have been some trying times for uh, people in the United States. Um, mm -hmm. is, is there any one thing that you in particular feel is a, is a, one of the greater injustices that we face right now that uh, socially is there one particular injustice that you think about that concerns you? Um, you know, there are many going on right now. Um, I think the, the toughest part for me is just seeing how um, stubborn people are in their ideas and opinions and unwillingness to think about really anything but themselves. I mean, we don't need to get into politics, but I heard some talk show host and a former governor last night saying, I've had the vaccine. I can, I should, it's my God given right to go wherever I want to go. <laughs> you're like, that's not your God given right. Necessarily. You got the vaccine because you want to, it, it's going to save your life. So, you know, yes. those kind of people, and these are, you know, in the media, they're all over the place and, and we have to learn to, to, hear them but also understand Filter. what they're yeah, yeah exactly but these are people who it's life is not about it's all about them and not about other people and i think education we learn that life is about other people and and we want to give to other people and and i would say i don't know a high percentage of educators really do feel that they are doing um you know really great work because they're helping kids and and i think maybe we're skewed because we're in that education world or have been in that education world. And that's been our focus. But, you know, I, I think, you know, that that's what scares me most about, about this, this country right now is that this divisiveness is really, it was probably always there. I think it just, the door just opened and now we see it. And that's been, there's been some positive to that, but I think uh, people's unwillingness to, understand the other side and listen again, getting back to the listening 
is is kind of appalling right now. Yeah, I think your uh, your idea about we've got to keep an open mind as we move forward because there will mm-hmm. always be good ideas that can be helpful to people. Uh, I understand completely about being an educator. I'm a third generation educator. My mom raised seven of us, and she was she was up at five in the morning making breakfast. She'd uh, then she'd go to the school. She'd walk around the track to get some exercise, teach mm-hmm. six classes, and mm-hmm. then she would tutor. Uh, young parents as to how to be better parents. So she oh, left wow. a, quite a legacy uh, of, <laughs> uh, of helping other people. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit about influences. Um, are there any books in particular that you have read that, that you recall that's, that really made a difference in your life, philosophically perhaps? Um, you know, I've read my entire life. So, um, do I have my top 10 books? Probably, (laughs) probably on my phone in the notes section. Yes. But, um, you know, again, I think books are, um, books are about ideas and books expose you to different ways of thinking. And I think those are the best books you can read. Um, you know, I can read, um, you know, war and peace. I can read, (laughs) um, you know, and have read Dostoevsky and all those books, which is a great look into a certain type of philosophy. Um, I used to love uh, Nadine Gordimer, who wrote about apartheid. Um, brilliant writer. Um, you know, a world I didn't know anything about. Um, sure. So, so again, how many authors are, are there like that that I've read? You know, hundreds, I'm sure. sure. And so just to be reading... Um, and it, it, it's one thing that I think I grew up with. It's certainly from my family. Um, and I think it's, I've passed it down to my family. Always have a book, always be reading a book, some book. Some um, book. I, I love Truman. Um, you know, <laughs> I love Gandhi. Uh, I love reading about historical figures, but I like good mysteries and, uh, whodunits too. So, um, I think as long as you're reading something, uh, I used to ask that question all the time in interviews, right? what book are you reading? <laughs> um, and I'm sure they had a good answer all the time, but, but some would say, oh, I'm not really a reader. And, and then I'd say, do you read magazines? Do you read? Yeah, I read. Mag-. I said, then, then you are a reader basically, as long as you're reading something, something that's, that's right. You know, that's right. Yeah. Well, you know, Pat, hearing about all of your experiences and, and your approach to life about being open and all the different experiences that you've had, uh, growing up on a farm with your grandfather, you kind of encapsulate really, again, I use the term, the Renaissance type of personality that I think speaks to what makes a good director of admission. You, you know, you have to have had a lot of different influences uh, because again, we didn't go to school to be admission officers. We were able to cobble together those different talents and successes into something that made us successful in in admissions. Um, You've had a lot of years in the education world. Uh, You now have an extremely successful business. So you've seen seen a lot of the world from a lot of different perspectives. Um, What would you, if you had a billboard, if you could put a billboard out to the world that the world freeway would see, what what kind of saying or what, what, 
what guiding philosophical thought would you like to put on that billboard? <laughs> that's really that's really an unfair question. <laughs> so I don't know if I can answer that one. Um, you know, go back a step though, and 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 you asked me what were some challenging times. I think sure. the most challenging times you have are when people question what you do. And absolutely there have been times where where uh you know, I've always seen admissions as a team approach, as a school approach. That's how I was trained. Um, and I do think what I fear for admissions people today is that um, they're being held accountable for things that they're not always accountable for uh, and sometimes are scapegoats um, for enrollment issues that really aren't their making. Um, and, I, and I feel bad that, um, that schools don't always operate with the same team approach anymore. It's become much more uh, corporate in, in some schools and um, less empathetic to people. Um, and so I, I really wish those admissions people who are entering the business well, of course, but I think they need to be warned that um, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of people who will doubt you. There are a lot of people who will question you that aren't um, educated enough in what you're doing to question you, but they will question you. And I think that's the hardest thing for admissions people to face. Um, and all you can do is, is do the best you can work as hard as you can learn as much as you can, um, while you're doing what you can and, and feel good about yourself, but you still might know that somebody down the road might say, we don't like what you're doing. And there you go. That's right. Under the, under the heading that life is not fair. Absolutely. You know, so maybe that would be my billboard. <clears throat> life is crossed out, <laughs> not fair. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Pat, this has been absolutely delightful. Uh, you, you and I go back uh, quite a ways. You were at Canterbury when I was at the gunnery and mm -hmm. I, you know, so often I say, where the heck did the, you know, where the, where the heck did the time go? Um, mm -hmm. People that uh, that we knew uh, in the profession who had little kids, um, mm -hmm. now they're in college and married and, and having jobs. Now, a quick question: Do you have? Uh, we've got two sons, and they're in their mid to late twenties. Uh, we don't have any uh, grandkids. You have any grandkids yet? Not yet. Not, Not yet. yet. Okay. I, one of my oldest daughters married two years now, and I'm sure they're planning on children. I try to stay out of it, I but um, yeah, <laughs> yes. Uh, so no grandchildren yet, but um, I, I hear that that's a great fun for, for parents, for grandparents to be a grandparent. I hear great things. So yeah, um, yeah I'm kind of looking forward to it actually. Yeah, we are too. We are too. Um, our oldest son uh, had a couple of near misses. He was engaged, uh, probably was for the best that it didn't work out, but uh, I'll, I'll share a quick story. My wife, to tell you how interested she is in grandchildren, she has saved her little dresses when she was about two and she has them on little hangers around the house. So what is that? <laughs> what is that? What does that, that tell you? That says a lot. Yeah. But you've been uh, very, very gracious and I look forward to us uh, having another chat down the line. Uh, is there anything that you'd like to just share uh, before we uh, before we head out uh, as it relates either to lessons learned or the profession itself? 
Uh, no, but I would say I'm, I'm so excited that the boarding school world has opened up um, its doors to many, many more people and uh, both from the faculty perspective and a student perspective. And, um, you know, boarding schools are great environments, can be great environments. And um, I think uh, people of all walks of life should, should know about them and, and consider them. And, th and that's kind of the great crime that we all know in admissions is that not many people consider boarding school and that's they right. really are great places and can be great places. And, you know, I, I'll end by saying I always gave the kids that came to boarding school a lot of credit because it's not an easy thing to do. Um, there's a lot of, um, you know, learning about yourself at a younger age than, than most people do in college that, that's right. that these kids have to go through. And, and that's why they need, I think, the support and the, the real uh, respect of faculty members and community members to help them get through that. So, um, you know, people who went to boarding school always say those were my formative years not yes. the college years. And right. that's, that's very true. And it's, uh, it's something that, that those of us who have been in boarding school and are still in boarding school have to really remember that, that the, these are very important years for them. Yeah. No, they're crucial. My wife was a, a four-year girl at Stony Burnham. And mm -hmm. it was really uh, she that told me it, it literally saved her life. So I, I agree. Mm -hmm. They're absolutely formative, absolutely formative years. Right. Um, I am excited uh, again to have you as our as our first guest, and also to let you know that our next guest is somebody you know probably quite well is Mark Scoro. Awesome, who is yes. as you know the CEO of uh, IECA. Yes, yeah, right. So somebody that that's, you probably have had many conversations with. Well, he'll he will put this interview to shame, I'm sure, uh, <laughs> but but he's a very very good guy and and has a lot of great perspective and and certainly. Uh, you know, the consultants uh, that we, you and I have been around all our lives. I mean, these are, these are great people as well. Uh, and, and they really, in, in terms of wanting what's best for kids, they're, they're all about that. So that's the great thing. So I, I tell Mark hello for me and uh, I'm sure you'll have a great conversation with him. Well, thank you very much. I wish you uh, a fabulous spring, uh, a good, a good season with the lacrosse team and, uh, just stay safe out there, friend, and we'll talk soon. Thanks very much, Tom. Thanks for having me. That's all for today's exciting episode of the Admissions Entrepreneur, A Day in the Life, with me, your host, Tom Skank, founder of Dartmouth Associates and creator of the Results Oriented Recruiting Solution, otherwise known as ROAR. Again, we've been treated to more fascinating stories by our guest. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes so you'll never miss an episode and Share the podcast link with your friends and colleagues. Also, stop by our website at dartmouthassociates.com. That's dartmouthassociates.com to review show notes. Thank you for listening. And until next week, have a terrific day and please stay safe. 
This episode is brought to you by Winner Marketing. They are a global company that actually understands independent schools. I know, as their advisor, I bring 30 years of educational success, both as a head of school and director of admissions. They don't try to squeeze you into a campaign template that doesn't fit your educational needs. Instead, they first listen carefully to your concerns and develop a creative solution just for you. They understand the increasing competition in the marketplace and aggressively pursue a comprehensive campaign to elevate the school brand to your target market. Their precise approach guides potential families from awareness to inquiry and to finally enroll. They use world-class methods to raise credibility and rankings by featuring you in top-tier press campaigns and optimizing your Google rankings with dynamic content. Additionally, they create press releases, funnel and ad campaigns, SMS and email nurturing. Also, they enhance domain authority, create backlink strategies, and engage top-tier retainers to get you featured in platinum publications such as Forbes and Business Insider. They will also create a podcast branding tour to exponentially increase your exposure. They've got the skills to help small nonprofits to multi-million dollar corporations. Contact them now. They can save your school. You can reach them at their website, which is winner, W-Y-N-N-E-R, marketing, Dot com. That's Winner Marketing, W-Y-N-N-E-R Marketing.com. Or reach them via email at info at WinnerMarketing.com. That's I-N-F-O at Winner, W-Y-N-N-E-R Marketing.com. This episode is sponsored by the NinjaGram app. Let's talk about automating your social media with the NinjaGram app over at www.ninjagram.app. This Instagram software will help you automate and grow your Instagram following fast by using their auto follow, auto unfollow, auto comment, auto like, and auto story views feature, and much more. Get over to www.ninjagram.app today to purchase and download the NinjaGram app at www.ninjagram.app and start growing your Instagram following fast today. Also, I want to give a shout out to my producers over at Hype Music Network and jwattproduction.com. These guys produce all my episodes and I trust no one else to bring the quality performance I demand every time. If you need help with your first podcast, they will take you by the hand and guide you through the whole process. Visit them at hypemusicnetwork.com. That's H-Y-P-E-M-U-S-I-C-N-E-T-W-O-R-K.com and at jwattproduction.com. That's J-A-Y-W-A-T-P-R-O-D-U-C-T-I-O-N.com. You will not be disappointed.